Welcome to American History Untucked. I'm your host, David Silkenet. My guest for this episode is Megan Kate Nelson, who is currently a visiting assistant professor at Brown University. Uh, I first came uh, to be familiar with, with Megan's work when I was asked to review uh, her most recent book, Ruination, for the Journal of Southern History uh, last year, and it has to be one of the best books I've read and most original books uh, I've read on the American Civil War um, in recent years. It's a really masterful uh, and original uh, exploration of landscapes of, of war and, and the ways in which the war was a destructive force uh, on buildings, on cities, on, on the landscape. She looked at this chapter where she looks at trees and the ways in which trees were destroyed by the war and whole forests were decimated. Uh, and finally, uh, she has a very interesting chapter on, on the physical destruction of the war on human bodies, looking at amputations and, and the like. Um, really an extraordinary book, and so I was very excited to uh, have her on the show. Um, in our interview, in our talk that we have, we, should we talk a little bit about Ruination. We also talk some about her earlier uh, book, Trembling Earth, which is a really interesting uh, study of the Okefenokee Swamp. Um, for those of you who haven't read that, picking up both books is, is highly recommended. Uh, we talk about lots of things in this, in this uh, conversation that lasts about an hour. We talk about uh, her research, we talk about ruins, uh, and we talk about some very interesting things that, that Megan's decided to take on uh, over the next couple of years. She's stepping away from academic history and, and doing some interesting new things that I'm uh, very excited about and looking forward to over the next couple of years. Hey, David. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. I have my earphones on for the first time, so this is all very exciting. Excellent. Okay. Well, hopefully that'll avoid feedback when we're going across the Atlantic. The uh, tends to be a little bit more feedback than when talking locally. That's so weird. I've never done a Skype call transatlantically. It's a wonderful thing to be able to do all this for free. <laughs> I know, that's so right. So imagine what so my right. phone bill would be like right now if I had to uh, pay for all the calls I make to the States. I know, right? Oh my God. So it's good to finally like talk to you and yeah. sort of uh, electronically meet you. Well, you know, I, I you know, it, it's, it's, it, I guess I, I got introduced to your work when I was asked to review the book for the, you know, it was the Journal of Southern History or something. And, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess we just sent an started sending emails back and forth, so it's good to finally uh, be able to to talk to you and talk to you in person, or at least more I'm... in person than. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Than yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, how are you liking Scotland? Is Scotland, it amazing? Scotland is amazing. Uh, Edinburgh. Have you ever been to Edinburgh? I have not. Okay. I really want to go. Uh, we'll have to find a way to get you over here, but uh, it's just it, it's it's an amazing city to live in. Uh, the university here is sort of right in the middle of of, of downtown, and it's a very small, walkable place. And so, uh, you know, everywhere you go, you know, there are relics of the past sort of embedded in everything. That's awesome. I mean, it sounds like it sounds very Boston-y, actually. Yeah. So, but if you add an extra five hundred years of history onto Boston, right, uh, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, so, and it, it's all sort of jumbled together in very interesting ways. You can, uh, you can just five steps outside of my office, you can see the house where where uh, Walter Scott lived, and then two doors down is the house uh, where Robert Louis Stevenson lived. 100 years later and right. just the juxtaposition of those things <laughs> yeah exactly and they're just on little Very plaques cool. just on the building and you walk by them and it's like oh this wall here yeah. was here to repel the english invaders in the 15th right. century and, uh it, it's right. it's everywhere so it's a uh remarkable uh sort of place for somebody who likes the past to just right wander around and i drag my family and point at little plaques and <laughs> I get very excited by it, and they look at me like I'm in. And <laughs> but uh, I imagine you... you have the same experience with ruins. I do, I do. Whenever I see them, I get really super excited, and everyone around me is like, 
okay. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> we went to Mexico um, a couple of years ago, and I dragged my husband um, to all the Mayan ruins and made him climb up and down uh, with me. And, and he was just like, really? This is vacation. Like, I appreciate... And what, he, he wanted to sit on the beach? He wanted to sit on the beach. He wanted to snorkel. And I was like, no. <laughs> we are going to climb to the top of this structure because it is awesome, even though it's a million degrees. And At it's there vertiginous. You, have whole, you know, it, the ruins are fairly intact and you have a whole structure and you can kind of envision what it looked like. Uh, the yes. things that were my family really, you know, gets mad at me was when I look at, you know, a pile of rocks and I say, well, here was something really impressive 500 years ago. And they look at me right. and they say, yes, but it hasn't been impressive in 400 years. <laughs> Why are we here? Uh, at least the ruins in Mexico are still something That's to look true. at. Yeah. That is true. They're, they're preserved quite well, which is, you know, remarkable. And, and sort of dug out of the jungle by archaeologists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And preserved because the the landscape uh, has sort of enveloped them for for centuries. Exactly. So, so how did you first get interested in ruins? I first got interested in ruins in swamps, actually, um, because when I was researching the first book mm-hmm. on the Okefenokee, I kept running into ruins in the swamp. There were ruins of Native American towns. There were ruins of English and Spanish kind of forts. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and then the, the rusting machinery of all of the, the logging industry. Sure. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. And I had a couple of really spectacular visual images because as ruins are particularly photogenic, so are swamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the, the tannin in the water makes the water reflective, perfectly reflective. And so when you take pictures, there's this clarity that you don't get in a lot of other landscapes. And, and I found these amazing photographs of, of ruins of um, this particular com- a logging company town in the Okefenokee. And I thought, this is very cool. And so actually the project started out as a study of, the, of ruins in the 19th century, mm-hmm. um, broadly construed. So actual um, material ruins, but then also financial ruins a topic we share um, an interest in, and um, also probably sexual ruin and a couple other sort of concepts, moral ruin, all kinds of things. And then luckily, you know, this was my second book project, and so I had learned from the first book and from my excellent dissertation advisors um, about what constitutes a good book topic. And so about, you know, a day or two after I thought of that book topic, I thought that is way too big. And I cannot possibly do that for the entire 19th century. And so um, I just kind of thought about, sat down and thought about what moments in the 19th century produced the most destruction. And the Civil War just sort of leapt into my, into my mind. I had never studied the Civil War before at all. I had never taken one class <laughs> Civil War history. So I sort of, as a, an assistant, a young assistant professor, um, kind of turned myself into a Civil War historian. I think I sort of had the, the same accident of falling into the Civil War. I wasn't, I didn't go to graduate school intending to do Civil War studies and, and, and sort of wound up doing the Civil War almost by accident. Where? Well, how did that happen? What did you intend? Well, I was... Yeah, in the depression of graduate school, um, I had started on one project that didn't go very well, uh, and, and my advisor told me to drop it and stop wasting so much time. Uh, oh, no. And, oh, no. What was it? Uh, it, it was on the uh, World's Columbian Exposition and the workers who uh-huh. built it. Oh. It actually cool. turned out, you know, I ended up going back to that project later and got it published, and, and so I was happy that I didn't actually yeah. waste that much time. But uh, right. uh, sort of in desperation, I was thinking of morose topics and... Uh, I ended up looking at at suicide because uh, I had I was always interested in violence and I was at North Carolina where there's obviously a long history of all kinds of violence and mm-hmm. trying to find something that that hadn't been done to death uh, to make a bad pun. Oh, David. And and found. Terrible. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> when you deal with all these depressing things, you don't have to have a good sense of humor. Uh, but you know, I, I was looking at at 
suicide and trying to uh, find something. So I saw that was one place that people hadn't done. They'd done you know, mm-hmm. gene and slave revolts and everything else. And so I right. was looking at that and I, I discovered that for reasons that baffled me at the time and I've moderately figured out since then that the Civil War was sort of critical to how Southerners understood suicide and that got me into looking at post-traumatic stress disorder and other things. But mm-hmm. uh, it sort of became a Civil War project by accident. And right. for a long time, I was sort of resistant to, to making it one. And then sources would, wouldn't let me do that. So I sort of became a Civil War historian by accident. And it turns out you know, I kind of <laughs> like it. But, uh, I know. I wonder how, how many of us there are out there, sort of accidental historians of the Civil War. It does we tend should, to we... gravity, especially I think our generation of people tends to not necessarily gravitate to the military topics. And then some mm-hmm. of us are actually sort of actively you know, repulsed by some of the elements of it. Mm-hmm. I know I was, you know, when I was in college and beforehand, the idea of what I thought Civil War history was, was not something that had a whole lot of appeal to me. Right. I was only after I sort of got into it and saw some of the things that one could do with it. Uh, right, and now you're hooked, right? Well, I'm either hooked or, or pigeonholed, one or the other. <laughs> Depends on which way you look at yeah, it. Yeah, you know, so the, you know, I have the job, and the job tells me I'm teaching these classes, so that's, you know, it's not all bad. But, uh, true, true. And the Civil War community is pretty great. It is. I mean, I was surprised, you know, just how friendly people were and and... and how interesting some of the stuff is this the new the not only the scholarship but the people were interesting people right uh, so when you were canoeing through these swamps uh mm-hmm. besides being avoid being eaten by alligators uh, <laughs> yeah. and you see these ruins uh did you always know what you were looking at no no i mean it was difficult um to figure out sort of, especially in the swamp itself, um, what that structure had been. Was it a, you know, um, part of a company town or was it a, a shelter for hunters? Um, you know, was it an actual house that mm-hmm. someone had built who was living um, within the Okefenokee because there were people living in the Okefenokee through the 1940s? Um, you know, and so what... What were these um, sort of remnants? What was this debris mm-hmm. um, that was left? And, and to some extent, the, the Okefenokee parks have, there's a sort of state-run park and then there's a private park. And they have excavated some things that they have used in a kind of, you know, they build little little paths where you can walk around, um, where you can see the, the ecology of the swamp, but also sort of a little history of the of the communities that have lived there. And so they use some of that debris as part of a sort of outdoor museum exhibit, Mm. um, which is interesting. Um, And at that point, when I was writing Trembling Earth, I wasn't as interested in that component. Um, I probably should have written another chapter at the end of that. I only took that study through the 1940s until the Okefenokee was saved um, as a wildlife refuge. because the modern stuff is the stuff that actually interests me now. The sort of how, how do these particular parks, um, because they are meant as natural spaces, how do they deal with the community histories in this space? And how do they you know, engage with visitors who are there for different reasons? Some people are there to learn that history. Some people are there to fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some people are there to canoe um, across and, and camp on these platforms in mm-hmm. the middle of the swamp. So... Um, I may go back and kind of think about that, um, a little more intensively, but it's an interesting engagement in those two different landscapes and it connects my, those two projects together. Well, I mean, one thing that struck me when I was reading Ruin Nation was just how important the place was and the landscape was to, to that book and the extent to which in reading it, I felt so much like I was there, you know, the, the physical space mattered far more than, than a lot of what Civil War scholarship looks like. Um, yes. Yeah, because this, this is a new field, right? So in addition 
to the kind of dark history that both of us practice, um, sort of looking at these, you know, um, depressing and, as you were saying, morose topics. <laughs> um, also, the environmental history of the war is a completely new field. I mean, there are really only three people who have books out on it now. It's, yeah. um, you know, Katie Meyer with her new book that is just out mm -hmm. in October, and then Lisa Brady, whose book War Upon the Land came out at the same basically within a month of, of Ruin Nation, also from Georgia. And there are a bunch of grad students who are working on projects um, on environmental histories of the war and wartime landscapes, but it's still not, I mean, it's a tiny, tiny field. And, you know, I mean, military historians, I think, have actually, I mean, even though, and, and I think actually a little too much is made of this, this sort of divide between military and cultural history, and I think it's been exacerbated of late um, <laughs> in different contexts. Um, but the military historians have always talked about landscape, mm -hmm. right? Because that's, that's their focus. The, the boots on the ground are the focus. And, but they don't, you know, their focus is more, what are the men doing sure. on, that, on that ground? And, and, and why does this hill give them an advantage to killing these other men on this other hill? Right, yeah. right. Which is important. I mean, oh, yeah, it's yeah. completely important, um, not only to the military history of the war, but also to the to anyone who's interested in how soldiers actually experience um, warfare, you know, in terms of the battles, but also everything else that they were doing besides trying to kill each other. Um, and so, you know, as a because I came from a sort of southern environmental history background that was my approach to the to the ruins um certainly in the beginning and i think the um you know the bodies chapter is a little bit different but the first three chapters of ruination on cities and houses and forests are very place focused and very landscape focused and i think even i mean there are, there are, is environmental history and then there's landscape history mm -hmm. um so, so why is it do you think that you know at this particular point in time we're having this flourishing of, of environmental history and civil war history coming together. Or to put it differently, why, have, why hasn't this happened before? Before. That's a really interesting question. I mean, I don't know if it's because of this, this sense that, you know, a lot of the elements of cultural history maybe have been already mined for a lot of good arguments and so historians were sort of casting about for other types of approaches mm -hmm. um i don't know if it's because civil war historians have increasingly become more welcoming to interdisciplinary approaches um so that you have more works that are bringing together you know environmental history and civil war history also history of capitalism and civil war history you know like the you know like the, I, I think civil war history has been traditionally seen as a very traditional yeah. field um but i think the because the current the current generation of sort of associates in full were trained during the social history revolution and multiculturalism so i think they are more open and especially when they're they're training their graduate students to different kinds of approaches. And this may be why. I mean, the if you look at kind of me and and Lisa Brady and Katie Meyer, you know, I'm coming from American studies. I'm coming from Southern environmental history. Like I'm coming at it from an angle sort of outside of Civil War history. Mm -hmm. um, Katie is very much within it. I mean, she trained with Gary Gallagher. She's a military historian who took an environmental angle. And then Lisa is an environmental historian, sort of trained um, in that particular school at the University of Kansas and was looking at warfare as a way to think about environmental history. <laughs> so, well, you know. You know it's interesting the way that, that, you know, people who are trained in different places and in different ways then all simultaneously come up with Right. Same ideas, you know, and it, this I know. similar kinds of things I think are going on with, you know, this dark turn. I don't know whether you like that term right. or not. Uh, I do like that term. Uh, I like I it better it's... than the neo-revisionism or whatever else yeah. it's called, because I think that's a <laughs> yeah. loaded term, too. But, uh, yes. you know, there's this whole 
bunch of people, you and me, and and you know, we could probably list dozens of names if we want to get who got interested simultaneously in in death and in amputation and in, in trauma of, of various kinds. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, I... and it's not as if we all were inspired specifically by the same thing. We just all ended up right. doing that at the same time. Right. I mean, do you have any thoughts about how to account for that? Uh, my immediate supposition is that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan mm. uh, were mm-hmm. very, you know, I don't think I work when I was working on, on suicide, I wasn't consciously listening to the news every day and thinking, wow, I need somebody needs to write a book about post-traumatic stress disorder and, 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 you know, civil war veterans. Um, but I think my unconscious mind was probably doing that work for me. Uh, and I'm mm-hmm. guessing that other people may have been sort of feeding off the same, uh, they may, right. may, may have been doing it more consciously than I was, but, uh, Right. You mean, so in the sense that we're embroiled in these wars that are not coded as glorious well, and yeah. kind of just wars, but as kind of disasters strategically and tactically. And, and, and I think we can see the impact of, the, of the, the wars on the landscape. We can see it mm-hmm. on the people. Um, I don't know if you've had the experience that I've had where we've got you know, veterans who have fought in these wars come back and then have difficulty readjusting in the classroom. Um, right. I know I've had yep. four or five students, um, you know, who have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan who, who really had a lot of difficulty, you know, coming back and, and reengaging with normal life and, and, and had all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And right. many of them were going to VA hospitals fairly regularly and um, I think we're all sort of shaped by those things, whether we, you know, are, are consciously sort of linking the past, to the present or not. I think the present always, you know, shapes the way, the kinds of questions we ask about the past. Um, right. Right. I think that's a persuasive argument. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the thing I always tell my students when looking at the historiography and they try to figure out why does the historiography evolve on any particular question, I always ask them, well, what's going on? politically and socially then and right you know why do people get interested in slavery in the 60s and 70s and right first they come up with intellectual answers and i said well okay let's step back for a second and think about what's actually going on in the country in the 60s and 70s and right say, oh okay oh. now it makes sense civil rights movement oh okay yeah for sure yeah and i think you can see that also with the the turn to um the history of capitalism mm-hmm. oh, definitely. um you know with the I mean, I don't, I don't think all of those studies emerged in, you know, after 2008, um, but there's definitely a sort of interest in economic structures and in things like technology, um, certainly after the, the internet boom, um, you know, for, for historians who are kind of our age, who did, perhaps did not grow up with. Um, these technological wonders that we are using right now to conduct this interview, um, you know, that becomes a a source of kind of fascination and interest and, and also historical inquiry. So one of the things that struck me about Ruination, looking back at it last night, uh, getting ready to talk to you, was how many illustrations you have in it? Yes. And not only how many, but, uh, how critical they are really to Mm -hmm. the entire argument to the book, which I think is unique is probably the wrong word, but it's at least unusual. A lot of people write the book and then the editor asks them at the end, do you want any pictures? And they scramble to find some. Right. Um, And I was just really impressed by the extent to which it was clear that you were working with the images while you were writing it. And it wasn't a, a, tacked on process there at the end where they, you said, Ooh, let me find some pictures that where there are no trees. Right. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you went about trying to find the images of some of these things? Because sure. that's a process I think of how to sort of access visual archives that, that lots of historians are not very good at. And you clearly are. Right. How, how do you, 
Yeah. How did you go about finding all of these things? Well, this is, I mean, I have always been interested in the visual and in visual culture. Um, I'm an American studies PhD, and so my major fields were 19th century history and literature, but also um, art history. And so um, I was always kind of looking out for visual images um, of Civil War landscapes, even when I, when I first started the project. But what really turned up the majority, so there are 41 images in Ruination, and about 25, I think 25 or 26 of them are from the American Antiquarian Society. And they, the reason for, part of the reason for that is that um, they awarded me a fellowship that was especially focused on graphic arts. So I had a short-term fellowship at the AAS where for a month I did nothing but look through their vast holdings of photographs and lithographs and engravings and song sheets <laughs> and uh, patriotic envelopes, anything that had a visual image either on it or constituted in and of itself a visual image I looked at at the AAS. So I looked at many, uh, more than a thousand visual images, including political cartoons. And at that point, I had already determined the structure for the book. So I knew that I was looking for images of houses and cities and forests and bodies. Um, so, and it was also very helpful, and I don't think you can really underestimate this. I had given a pre the other thing that AAS does that's really fantastic is that each fellow gives a presentation to the archivists hmm. at, at the beginning of their fellowship stint hmm. so that the archivists know what you're doing. And they have a chance to ask questions and they have a chance to look for things. So I would go in every day and I'd be going, you know, I'd be calling all of these um, collections that they had and going through all of them. And then an archivist would run out of the back and say, have you seen this? And it would be this amazing lithograph of an amputee. You know, so, so they were helping me all along to find these amazing images. And once you start looking in the visual record, you will see, and you know, for ruins, I mean, they were just, they were everywhere. I could, I could have used 500 images in, in ruination. The fact that there are only 41 is sort of, uh, you know, I had to cull a lot of those. And, and my whole approach was that the visual culture of the Civil War is not just about historians now using those images to kind of illustrate a point or show you what a general looked like or to, to construct the memory of the war. I mean, they do all of those things, but for civil war Americans, the war was a visual experience. They saw the, you know, soldiers were seeing these landscapes. They took the time to look around and they talked about um, the landscape in their letters and diaries all the time. And then Artists and photographers were constantly taking, you know, illustrating battles and, and depicting camps and people. And, um, and photographers, of course, were all over the place, especially in northern um, camps and battlefields. And so they were producing this just amazing visual record of the war. And it was very meaningful to Civil War Americans at the time. And that's how they understood their one of the ways that they understood their experience. And so for me, um, visual images were not just illustration. They were evidence, um, both kind of thematically and ideologically, but also materially. Mm -hmm. You know, these soldiers had copies of Harper's. Sure. You know, they had photographs taken of themselves. They, they had these things and they carried them with them. So they had a material reality that's really important. And I think both Civil War historians and environmental historians don't use visual sources enough in their work. Because I think if they really took the time to look at them, they would see these visual images everywhere that can tell them something new and, and different, perhaps, than what they're seeing in the print record. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if one reason why more historians don't 
rely on the, the visual image as much is because their publishers actively dissuade us from using them. You know, that, they, they yeah. There, there's that, there's a pressure to have as few images as possible in our books because yes. of cost and whatnot. Right, and I don't really, I don't really understand that, especially in this day and age um, of digital reproductions and the way that that books are published now. Um, I did negotiate for. I knew going in that I was going to be using a lot of visual sources, and so I negotiated for forty images and they gave me 41 and then um and the the additional one was the the amazing photograph the steel standing photographed in the conclusion sure so Um, i was going to ask you about that i mean you said the the book is full of these images the war and then you end with the uh, i guess it's actually on the last page or the next to last page of the book where there's this image of the the twin towers or the the south tower um from 9-11 Mm-hmm. What was it about that image that you wanted to to say about? What does that tell you about ruins or about uh, the place of ruins in American society? Well, to me, it was saying, and and I argue in the conclusion that this this image has this very strange duality to it because it's it's a a really beautiful black and white photograph of the shard of of wall from the South Tower um, that was left standing in the wake of the collapse. Um, and the title of the photograph is Steel Standing, right? So mm-hmm. it suggests um, the title and then just the, the sort of stark image suggests to us a sort of American resilience in the, the wake of a tragedy and in the wake of destruction like that. Um, Yet, if you look really closely at that image, um, there is, uh, what is it called? The excavator? Yes, thank you. I was like, backhoe? And I was like, that's not No, no, I I have teenage boys now, but Uh, children, I knew the names of all these farms. So there's an excavator in, in the foreground, and it is about to pull that shard of wall down. And of course, it does not exist anymore looking like that. Um, and so my point there is that, that, that kind of photograph, especially because it's reproduced in black and white, which I think is really interesting. Um, so it historicizes and sort of places that particular ruin in the past in a very positive kind of light to sort of prove American strength and durability. Um, when really then the reality of that shard of wall is that it, it doesn't exist any longer. If it does, it exists in fragments in different places. I think there's a part of it that's actually in the nine 11 museum now. Um, but other parts of it were dispersed, um, to different people, um, and other museums. And then part of it is just landfill. And so that shard is no longer steel standing, right? We've erased it from our landscape and now we have this freedom tower, Replacing it. Um, Replacing it. And which is the ultimate expression of American, you know, technological ingenuity and capitalist power, right? Um, That we we rebuild. We do not keep our ruins around. Um, And to me, that is problematic. Because when you keep your ruins around, you're forced to actually reckon with the scale of the destruction mm-hmm. and the story of how that destruction came about. Um, and it makes that moment and that event much more accessible and present and insistent, I think. Um, so if they had left that shard of wall up kind of in front of the Freedom Tower, that's a much more interesting landscape of reckoning sure. than, what, than what we have now. Um, I should say that um, Anthony Whitaker, who took that photograph, um, who's actually an engineer, not a a professional photographer, allowed me to reproduce that image um, for free in the book, which was really amazing. Um, And he did not enjoy my analysis of it (laughs) (laughs) Um, in ruination. And he we're we're fine and we're good. he, He wrote me an email after he read the book, I sent him a copy of the book and he, he objected quite strongly oh. um, to my analysis of that image because he is very invested in the kind of positive narrative of, <laughs> of durability. 
Well, I mean, it seems very particularly American, the way we relate to ruins, is that we sort of bulldoze them um, rather than leave them in place, you know. And, and, yes. Uh, going to Civil War sites today, you don't see ruins a, as much as you do, you know, when you visit sort of comparable sites in Europe. Uh, right. Yes. Yeah, Europe is an interesting, you know, there there are there are ruins in different forms um, all over Europe, you know, the sort of Roman aqueducts and, and everything in France. Um, and then Germany has, uh, has kept one of their bombed out churches. Mm. Um, I think it's in Berlin, um, which you can go visit and you go visit the ruin of it. Um, and there's a whole, and they have created a museum um, of the bombing out of it. And, you know, that, that is an interesting retention um, of the past that I think teaches really valuable lessons. Um, and, but, you know, for the most part, all of these kinds of Civil War ruins disappeared within a generation. You know, the South had to rebuild itself. And so interestingly, they did that by taking um, the debris of the war and reutilizing it. So often, often I talk about this as the, the, the nation's first sort of widespread recycling project. <laughs> Um, because they recycled all the wood from all of the camp landscapes that were built. Um, and they took all of the, the urban debris. And so there are many structures and this is very interesting and you wouldn't know it, um, unless you kind of saw it or it was marked in some way that many of the structures in these Southern towns that were destroyed are rebuilt using, the brick and the um and other material that had you know been destroyed sure. in these sieges or in bombings or whatever the i think the i think it's the town hall in chambersburg is built out of a combination of local rock and the debris from the the burning of chambersburg in 64 hmm. so You've been teaching at, at Brown University this year, and you were mm -hmm. teaching at, 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 I guess you were teaching at Harvard uh, last year. Is that remembering this correctly? Yeah, for the for the past couple of years, years. for the last okay. three years or so. Yep. And and you recently made, I think, a somewhat surprising announcement to lots of people that you're uh, taking a, I don't know whether you want to call it a temporary or permanent hiatus from the from the classroom. And I wondered if you'd be uh, up for for talking a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so, I mean, as you know, um, when you go into the academic world, uh, there are a lot of decisions that you have to make about your career, right? And if you have a family, um, there are a lot of decisions uh, that you make in an effort to try and continue your career as a professor um, and academic and intellectual, and then also, you know, mm -hmm. have a family life. Um, so the... What ended? What happened is that I I started off as an assistant professor of American Studies at Texas Tech University. So that was my first job out of out of grad school. Um, and my husband was moving back and forth. He was going back and forth from Boston to Lubbock, mm -hmm. Texas. Um, so that was untenable. Um, we moved to to Cal State Fullerton um, in order to make that situation a little bit easier. And it was for a little while, but ultimately my husband had to come back to Boston. And so I took a leave, I took a research leave, and that's actually when I did all of the research for Ruin Nation, um, was during that year away from Fullerton. And at the end of that year, I decided to leave the tenure track. And I tell this story because this is, this is why this has all come about in sort yeah. of a, a weird quirk of the, of the profession uh, which is that, I mean, I was, I was extraordinarily, extraordinarily lucky in some ways because I did have um, this opportunity at Harvard, which was to teach in the history and literature program. Um, and I was able to do that part-time um, for four years. So it was a two-year contract, but they allowed me to take it in part-time chunks, which was nice because it allowed me to go on the job market for longer and have more cushion. And then it also allowed me to, to finish the book and publish it. 
Um, but then the problem became that, because that was an adjunct position. Sure. I mean, Harvard calls it a lectureship, but it's an adjunct position. Um, and so the problem became that I was an adjunct with two books. You know, and I think people outside of academia don't really understand what that means. How, 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 cra <laughs> just how crazy yeah. the yeah. academic job yeah. market is and how, right. yes. you know, when, when there are searches, the, 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 these, how qualified so many of these applicants are and, and you look at them and, and you say, well, you know, how is it this person can, a person can be as accomplished as, as you are and, and, you know, not have a tenure drag jobs sitting for her, you know, wherever you want. Right. Um, right. I mean, I remember and, when I yeah. finished graduate school, uh, my non-academic friends say, so are you going to get a job at Duke or UNC? And I oh, said, right. <laughs> and I said, I said, uh, uh, no. Um, yeah. And they said, well, why not? Those are good schools. You could stay around here. And I said, well, that would be nice. But, you know, the, yes. the and I remember I got the, the job at, in North Dakota and, and my non-academic friends, you know, the few of them that I have, um, <laughs> right. just said, said, why in God's what? name are you going to move into North Dakota? You know, right. this is, you're, this is, sounds ludicrous. You know, why are you going, uh, if you're doing research on, on the American South, why are you going there? And, and my academic friends, and this was right before the market got, went from really bad to really, really bad, were, were you know, happy for me that I found anything. Right. Uh, Yes. And it's very, it's very peculiar. And, and, you know, so the, the requirements of the market really suggest that you, you have to be willing to go anywhere. And I think at the beginning of your career that you should do that. And that's how I ended up in Lubbock. Mm -hmm. And I you ended up in North Dakota, right? And, and these are not, this isn't bad. Like this is, a, this is, you know, universities exist in these places because they serve a need and you can't just you know, relocate all major colleges and universities to metropolitan areas. <laughs> that's not, that's not going to happen. Um, but the other peculiarity of this is exactly this problem, which is that I was simultaneously too qualified to be hired for an assistant professor position. And so I was just not getting any looks from, from that particular field, because I think quite rightly, I mean, departments are looking to hire young scholars who are just coming out. And the, and the market should exist for them. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is important too. Um, but I also was not going to get hired by any search committee looking for an associate professor because I was an adjunct. So no one would hire me off the adjunct track for that. Yeah. And I think you can point to that and say that that's a little short-sighted. But... You know, I understand the pressures in that situation also. What dean is going to understand that particular hiring argument? Um, so, so basically, when it came down to this year, I had this opportunity to teach at Brown for just a year. I was replacing Mike Vorenberg, um, who was off on fellowship. Um, so I was teaching some Civil War classes, uh, or just one Civil War class, actually, and then some, some other seminars. Um, as a kind of replacement, but so that, that position has been great, but it has no future. And so I decided pretty early on in this particular job cycle that if I did not, uh, get the, any of the jobs I was applying for, um, that it was time to leave, um, because the situation was not going to get any better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, certainly, um, I was just going to be producing more. So I was going to be uh, creating a sort of still creating my own problem for myself because um, I wasn't going to stop writing sure. or, or, you know, try to disavow the books or anything. So um, be like, Oh no, I didn't Just write change that. your name halfway through your career and exactly. start over again. Exactly. Write, write like, under a pseudonym. Exactly. I don't, I don't know who that person is. Um, so, so yeah, so I decided, um, you know, there was a lot of thought that went into this about sort of what other things could I be doing. And I have increasingly been interested in, in writing for the, for the public, um, and writing different kinds of pieces that still engage with history, um, but are not the monograph mm -hmm. and the scholarly academic essay that is published in a journal. And so I've decided to devote, um, 
at least two years to freelance writing. And it'll be a combination of things. Um, I have a book project, which we've emailed about, sure. I think. Um, a are, narrative are you willing history. to talk about that in a more public setting? Sure. Or? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, this is, and I've been, I've been publishing some academic stuff um, that is related to this, but the, the new book project is a narrative history of the Civil War in the desert Southwest. And what I am contending is that, uh, you know, the West was won and lost during the American Civil War. And so the book is going to try and show kind of why this was. And it will be, it will have a different kind of structure because it is, again, not going to be a kind of standard scholarly monograph. And so it will be organized actually by protagonist. Hmm. So I have seven, I'll either have six or seven protagonists. I haven't fully decided on the final one. Um, but the Northerners um, will be Kit Carson because you cannot write a book about the Civil War in the Desert Southwest without Kit Carson. Um, and then a gold miner named Alonzo Ickes, who fights for the Union during the entire campaign against the Confederates and then heads out to Kansas to be a guerrilla fighter, which is interesting. Mm. Um, then the Southerners are John Baylor, who is the first uh, Confederate to actually enter New Mexico territory and try to take it for the Confederacy, um, establishes the, the Confederate territory of Arizona and, you know, kind of installs himself as the governor. And he's crazy, which is why he makes a really good protagonist. Um, he's an Indian hater, a really vociferous one. Um, and he, you know, has these sort of amazing um, reports that he writes. So he's, he's one Southern character. And then the other is a wagon master who's a Texan named Bill Davidson. Hmm. Um, and then I have two Native American characters, one an Apache named Mangus Coloradus, uh, who actually dies in the midst of the war. So his chapters will end with his death. Um, I wanted to look for that, actually. I wanted someone who would die, who wouldn't survive <laughs> the thing. Um, and so he, he is one of them. Um, I haven't picked my, my Navajo um, protagonist yet, but that story is very important because it's during the Civil War that the Union, under Kit, you know, through Kit Carson, rounds up the Navajo and forces them on into an internment camp in the middle of New Mexico called Bosque Redondo. Um, so... And then the, the flex character that I'm playing with is a New Mexican civilian, sort of see the conflict from, from his point of view. Um, so what, what the book is going to do is sort of make the contention, which I think several people have started making, um, including Carl Jacoby and Ari Kelman, um, that the civil, it, it, you know, the usual narrative is there was the Civil War and then all of those, you know, that all that U.S. Army infrastructure and structure was was refocused toward Native Americans. So there was the Civil War and then the Indian Wars. Yeah. And the contention here is that the Civil War was an Indian War in this theater. Sure. Um, and that it's in this theater that we can see the Civil War as also an imperial move. Um, especially, I mean, for, for the Confederates until they failed in it, but also in particular for the, for the Union, um, to establish a, a continental empire um, through war against Confederates, a kind of two-front war against Confederates and Native Americans, the Apache and the Navajo in particular. Um, yeah, so that's the, that's the new project. Do you write differently when you're writing for a public audience rather than when you're writing for an academic one? I do. I do. Um, and in fact, the, the piece of advice that I always give uh, to grad students or to anyone who's interested in writing kind of in different formats, um, one of the easiest ways to sort of change your voice is to change your font. <laughs> and so I know it sounds So ridiculous. what font should I be writing in? It's whatever you want, David. You go through, go through your little pull-down list, right? Because we all write. You probably like. So, what font do you usually write in for your academic work? I guess I usually write in Times New Roman because that's usually what the publishers ask for. But uh, right. Should I be so, writing in something different? I don't. What, what what does work for you? I think you should. So I 
I really love my academic font. My academic font is Garamond, Ooh, okay. which is beautiful and clean. And, and it's also very compressed. And so um, when I convert it to Times New Roman for the editors, it's always like five pages longer, which always makes me happy. So, um, but when I started to write, I actually started writing more public oriented pieces when I started writing media reviews. Um, so I've written reviews of the television show Hell on Wheels, of various PBS documentaries, and then also feature films that are Civil War-related or historical films. Um, and that was kind of my first foray into that writing world. And I was having a little trouble doing it in that first review. And so I just kind of went into the font list, and I, and I chose another font that is very clean but very modern um, called Avenir Book. So everything that I write now, although I think I may change, I'm going to change it, I think, for the, for the book project also. But my shorter pieces that are focused on media, I now always write in Avenir book. And what it does is it just, you know, you're used to staring at your screen um, and seeing the, the words that you think of kind of appear on the page. And so that's your, your interface with your voice. Okay. And I'll so, try you, yeah. So if you change your font, then you kind of think, I think you think a little bit differently about approach and about language, um, and about telling a particular story. Um, but certainly, I mean, it depends on what the piece is. And I think, I think you would probably agree with this. Like when you're writing in different styles, it depends on who your audience is so that my voice is slightly different if I'm writing for the New York Times disunion blog, for example, sure. or if I'm writing for Civil War Times magazine. Um, but I like to play around uh, with all kinds of things now in my writing for the public in terms of structure, but also in terms of approach or style. Um, I just recently, the review I wrote of 12 Years a Slave for the Civil War Times, I, I did entirely in the you voice. So it was, you walk into the theater and the first thing you notice is da da da. I need to write um, my next book in the second person. That would be wonderful. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because um, it it puts you in it puts the reader in a relationship with the, your subject in a totally different way. Or I guess if it's a southern book, I could do it in the second person plural. There you go. Y'all walked. Y'all. Yeah, y'all. Walked, walked in. Yeah. Huh. Yes. All y'all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You can completely do that. Um, yeah, so, it and it's fun. You know, when you've been writing in the academic voice for your entire career, it's really liberating um, to set yourself free from that. And so you've got this book project you're, you're planning on doing. What else is, yes. on, uh, is on your agenda for the... So the book project will be the real driver. So I'm going to be... Um, researching that a lot over the, over the next year, taking a bunch of research trips to the Southwest. But while I'm doing that, um, I'm going to have a blog up and running. So I'll actually be tracking my progress. I'll be posting a lot of images, um, photographs that I take um, from the field um, during that research process. Um, the blog will be called Historista. Ooh. And uh, it will be, its tagline is, history street style. Um, and what I mean by that is that I'm going to approach history kind of from the level of the street in the same way. I, I take this term from fashion photographers who take pictures of, of people wearing interesting clothes on the street mm -hmm. um, because it's a way to track how people kind of appropriate um, certain objects and certain um, kind of narratives and remake them for themselves. And so what I'm interested in are sort of where people do this with history. So if it's actually on the street or in kind of interesting websites or in popular media, where do we see history emerging in a really interesting and you know, sometimes possibly perplexing or bizarre <laughs> um, yeah. way? Um, and so that will enable me to take on a lot of different kinds of um, shorter pieces that are kind of observational in nature 
um, but also analytical. And I'll probably, you know, kind of then tie them back to historical trends and developments. But that'll be the place where I'll be doing that kind of writing, but also um, some of the thinking about the new book. And then I'll be writing shorter pieces for the Civil War Times and for other magazines and hopefully more work for the New York Times um, also to just kind of um, get my work out there and and see what there is. Um, so is the site up yet or is this coming? In no. Um, it is, it is in process. In It'll process. be up. It is in process. Um, as you know, well, maybe, and maybe you don't know this, this will be useful for people to know. I did not know this. So when I, I bought my domain names mm. and if you do not set up your website with the domain from, from the hosting site from which you purchase the domain name, they make you wait for 60 days to transfer it. Mm -hmm. So there's a waiting period, which actually I'm totally fine with because I don't want to launch this until I'm done with the semester and done with grading and I can just focus on this. Um, so it will be up probably in early to mid June, definitely before um, the Society of Civil War Historians meeting in Baltimore. Um, are you going to be there? No, I'm actually not getting back into the States until right after that ends. Oh man. Okay. So. Um, so so I will probably post some things from that meeting. Oh, good. Um, then I can attend in abstention. You know. Yes. Yes. And um, everything will be hooked up to it. You know, Instagram and Twitter and all that, all that good stuff uh, will be fully integrated. And then, of course, there is the piece de resistance, uh, which will also be on the website. Um, and the website will be MeganKateNelson.com, but the blog will be on it. Historista will be on it. And then there will... I haven't decided whether the the video series will be in the blog or whether it will have its own page. Um, but this is the what we have discussed before, which is the video series "Drinking with Historians." <laughs> so, I think it's a wonderful idea, but uh... yeah. So this will be um, kind of where inside the actor's studio and Charlie Rose and <laughs> drunk history meets, um, which will be kind of 15 minute videos in which I sit down with a historian and we drink something, um, either a cocktail or a beer that is related to the historian's work in some way. So it doesn't have to be a historical cocktail or a historical beer, like actually from a recipe from the 19th century, but it should be kind of related thematically in some sort of way. And so at the beginning of the video, especially if it's a cocktail, we will have uh, the recipe nice. there for the viewer. So the viewer may pause the video, make the cocktail. And then join you. And join us. In that drinking. sounds extraordinary. Isn't that awesome? Um, Potentially very dangerous, but extraordinary. Yes. Very dangerous. So <laughs> things, things could get very interesting. So this will be... Um, you know, a little bit of kind of what we're doing here, just sort of talking about the work and talking about um, interesting questions related to the work. But then there will be um, a section that is a little inside the actor's studio-ish where there will be some impertinent questions um, that the historian will be forced to answer. And then possibly some dancing. That sounds extraordinarily dangerous, but the cocktail yes. I think will help. Yes, yes. That... The dancing will probably occur more organically. Um, that that may be more of an option <laughs> rather than a requirement. Um, but the point of that series is, you know, to really engage and kind of make connections with um, people out there kind of in the broader world who are not in our classrooms and who are not at academic conferences, um, but who still really like history and really like kind of knowing about historians and about the work that they're doing. Um, and so this kind of brings a professional um, sort of uh, approach, you know, because we will be talking about the work, but it will also allow people to sort of see the more personal side of historians, that they're actual real people. people. Yeah. <laughs> that we don't live in our offices. And... Exactly, exactly. And that they have... So there will be a part like hidden talents. Oh, geez, this sounds, you know, dangerous. 
Yeah. So like who, well, but you know, so for example, one of my colleagues, I won't give this away because this will be part of the web series, but I have a colleague who sings opera. Really? In addition to writing really kick-ass history. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? So, you know, I mean, there are things about uh, one another are sort of the other, the other things that we do when we're not teaching and we're not researching and writing. Um, and those, you know, are interesting things to know about. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yes. Yes. Well, and so I will either, because I think when you are going to be here in August, yeah. I will be gone already oh. um, okay. out to the West. So I think I may miss you on that trip, yeah. um, but we definitely have well, to. We may run into each other at Pennsylvania. I've got a, you're doing the Civil War Institute. There. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I have to yeah, drop yeah. somebody off there and pick them up. It's over. Right. So right. That's right. Okay. Yes. Cause we will be, so that the CWI, um, in July will def or yeah, no, late June will be, um, an opportunity for much filming of drinking with historians. Um, so yeah, I may have to snag you. Well, that's one element of academic conferences. I think the general public doesn't know a whole lot about, I think they know about giving the papers and, and whatnot. I think the, conference bar hotels are an oh. element of this whole phenomenon that uh, yes. the broader public is yes. willfully, willfully ignorant of. Yes. There may be there may be a post on Historista, <laughs> which will be a sort of anthropological report on the, the hotel bar at an academic conference. Oh, great. So look for that. Well, it was really nice talking with you. Nice talking with you. And, and hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully we'll get to meet face to face. Hey. Looking forward to that, too. All right. Excellent. Well, that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that conversation a lot. I'm going to have to change my font and everything I write from now on, depending on who my audience is. Uh, if you've got questions about the show or comments you'd like to make, uh, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or topic for the show, you can email me at AmericanHistoryUntucked at gmail.com. And we've got a website for for this show at AmericanHistoryUntucked.blogspot.com. Got some interesting shows coming up for you very shortly, so stay tuned.